One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello once again and welcome back to Signals to Danger. This is a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these incidents shaped the industry going forwards. My name is Dan Fox. I work within the uh, rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'm going to be the one that's taking you through this podcast. Since last time we spoke, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Darren for signing up to the Patreon and supporting the podcast. And if you'd like to find out how to do this, please head over to signalstodanger.com and click on support. Now, I've looked at Patreon and I've decided to change it up a little bit, give people a little bit more for the money, and from now on, I will be live streaming all of my episode records and also be doing some bi-monthly YouTube live Q&As. These will be exclusive to those who subscribe to the live stream tier of the Patreon. And that's just as a way of saying an extra special thank you. Now, all Patreons will be able to access the live streams after they've been recorded, um, to watch back at a later date. I'm not, however, starting this week due to my travel plans and things changing. I'm actually recording in my mother-in-law's kitchen, um, so not quite the usual um, studio background that you'll be seeing for that one. So this episode will not be filmed. Inadvertently, I have also ended up with a new microphone, so hopefully these sound quality should be a little bit better than usual. I hope so, or I probably want my money back, or maybe I'm just going to need to learn to use it a little bit better. If nothing else, the high-pitched whine that I think none of you have actually seemed to notice from previous episodes may finally go away. Now, with all of that out of the way, we can move into this week's episode. Following on from last weekend's chaos of Storm Arwen, I felt that it would make sense to cover an episode directly influenced by poor weather. So without further ado, let's dive right in. The water surged along the swollen river, washing through the railings of a bridge. The tracks formed a ramp, sloping down into the murky, swirling current. And a train stood on those tracks, its front end almost entirely beneath the surface. The year is 1987, and the place is Glanrid. Are crushed one on top of another. 
10,000 miles of the railway crisscross Great Britain, carrying thousands of trains and their hundreds of thousands of passengers from A to B and back again every single day. Tens of thousands of miles of steel rails carrying those trains on their journeys. Our green and pleasant land, however, is not green, pleasant and flat. In fact, in the poem, and indeed him, Jerusalem, mountains green are mentioned before the pleasant pastures, and clouded hills sneak in in the next verse. The great British poet William Blake, and the Great Britain that he was writing about, is one of an undulating landscape split by vast rivers and valleys carved out by glaciers, as well as that of the uh, less dramatic vistas. To negotiate all of this, those ribbons of steel need a helping hand from something else, and that is how we find ourselves entering the subject of earthworks and structures. The tracks themselves, the wooden or concrete sleepers and associated fixings that tie them together, and the ballast that they rest on, form the permanent way, the line itself. But this only forms the entirety of the railway in the areas where the going is entirely flat, and there's no other obstruction to the route, which, let's be fair, is pretty much nowhere in its entirety. Railways work most efficiently when the line is as flat as possible. While trains are capable of efficiently moving enormous loads at good speed, the uh, the amount they move, or the power required to actually move it, increases considerably when gradients are added into the mix. For this reason, considerable efforts are made to keep those climbs as minimal as possible. Of the network, this might be as simple as cutting a gap in the small rises in the ground to keep the line flat instead of having to climb over it. Unsurprisingly, this type of earthwork is known as a cutting. In a similar vein, where the land falls away a little bit below the level of flat, earth can be built up into an embankment underneath it, keeping the line level and above the earth around it. Lengths of the rail network can be found atop railway embankments, and we've all seen trains running across them, above the fields or the towns around them. Earthworks are a brilliant and cost-effective way of flattening out a line of route, and in fact they are often used in conjunction. Many areas of the network see a combination of small rises and falls, and in terms of efficiency there's a lot to be said from digging out a cutting here, and then dumping the exact same earth 300 yards down the line to create an embankment, with a little more technical structural engineering involved than just a hump and dump, but I'm pretty sure you get what I'm driving at. There are times, however, that embankments and cuttings simply won't make the grade, and there is a railway pun in there for people who want to try and find it. And that is the point when earthworks must give way to structures. A hill is quite, well, a hill's quite often too high to turn into a cutting. Clearly, you can't cut away a mountain just to run a railway line, and at the very least it would take years to do. But it would be prohibitively expensive and not remotely environmentally considerate. Can you imagine vast swathes of the Pennines, Peaks and Scottish Highlands scored through by artificial valleys to allow the railway to do its thing and, well, where would you put the soil? You get the drift. No, in that circumstance the most sensible option is to remove only as much earth as it takes to send a train through the gap that you've made, and for that you need a tunnel. For almost as long as we've been building railways we have perfected the art of tunnelling. Our hill-laden landscape, well, it's required it. From small bores to many kilometres long, you'll find them all over England, Scotland and Wales. But at risk of trending back towards my old habit of being a sucker for a tangent, cuttings, embankments and tunnels are not to be a focus for this episode. That is something else. If tunnels are the structural counterpart to cuttings, then it's embankments counterpart we actually need to think about. 
the bridge. While tunnels are used when cuttings aren't feasible, bridges are used when an embankment won't work. And there are plenty of situations where embankments would not be the most suitable methods of bridging a gap, but by far the most obstructive is when you need something to be able to travel underneath the line. Roads, footpaths, or the railway lines, in fact. Now, for this, a span must be created, an open space beneath the line. And to finally claw us back to what the subject of this week's episode will be, one final example of a situation where a... Uh, a bridge must be used to cross over the top of a hazard, is when your railway needs to cross a river. A river such as the Towie. in this podcast many times before about many different railway lines. High-speed main lines, core trunk routes carrying the fastest services, scores of commuters and tons of freight. The West and the East Coast main lines, the Great Western, you know the usual culprits by now, but, well, there are many smaller, more rural lines which are also present, feeding the main lines which connect communities across the countries. And there used to be a lot more, to be fair, around double priority nationalisation, rationalisation and closures for financial reasons, although we're not really going to talk about Dr. Beeching today. I don't have the time for that. Today, we are going to talk about the heart of Wales line, and I will preface all of that discussion by apologising in advance for what is inevitably going to happen when I pronounce something incorrectly. The heart of Wales is a rural line, which runs from Craven Arms in the English county of Shropshire to Lanethi a Welsh market town in Carmarthenshire. The line is famed for its beautiful scenery and serves several rural communities along its route. And as a polite nod to my day job, I'll also point out that the line is home to the Heart of Wales Line Development Company, a community rail partnership which promotes and develops the Heart of Wales railway line for the benefit of people living and working locally, local businesses, and of course, for visitors. Interestingly, the line is single track almost in its entirety, with five passing loops along its length to allow services to cross. And in 1986, the signalling was modernised, removing the individual signal boxes at each station and introducing something known as No Signalman Token Remote Working. This method of work involved token machines at each station, each of the loops overseen by a signaller in one location. But it's not, well, sorry, this episode is not on the subject of signalling. It's just interesting to know. It's also interesting to know that while we refer to the main lines as heavy rail, the heart of Wales line is actually a light railway. Not in the sense that it's a tram. No, the trains that run here are definitely trains. But more in relation to an Act of Parliament that was passed in 1896. At the time... Every new railway had to be ratified by an Act of Parliament, a long-winded and not effortless procedure, and certainly not an inexpensive one. Now, when such effort and cost was involved, prospective railway companies focused their efforts where passenger numbers were liable to be higher, and that was often to the detriment of the rural communities. 
The economic downturn of the 1880s had hit agricultural and rural communities in the United Kingdom especially hard, and the government wished to facilitate the construction of railways in those areas, to facilitate the transportation of goods and, of goods, sorry, and the mobility of people. The Light Railways Act of 1896 defined a class of railways which did not require specific legislation, that Act of Parliament, to construct. Companies could simply plan a line in order with the Act and, having obtained a light railway order, build and operate it. Through the reduction in legal costs and allowing new railways to be built quickly, the government hoped to encourage companies to build the new light railways in areas of low population and industries that were previously of little interest to them. And while a number of light railway lines were completed, most eventually closed, many before Beeching could even take a look at them. Five remaining services preserved railways, heritage lines, and well, one line remains in use as a railway line proper, the Heart of Wales, which has operated under such an order since 1972. As the line leaves England and crosses diagonally down through Wales, it roughly follows the line of the A483 into the heart of the country passing areas of remote beauty, with fantastic names like Sugarloaf. At Flandovery, however, the line swings into alignment with another feature of the central Wales, the River Towie. For 75 miles, the Towie flows through Wales, capturing water as it goes and eventually depositing it into the Irish Sea. But for around 10 miles, it shares its space with the heart of Wales line between Flandovery and Landelo. Over this distance, the river meanders left and right following the contours of the valley floor. Now we know from what was said earlier that this would be an ideal place for the railway, preventing the need to climb the hills either side, and so for this ten mile stretch the rails and the river are never far apart. In fact, on three separate occasions, the railway is covered over the Towie by bridges. Once, twice, three times as the trains head west. That final crossing was over Glanrid Bridge. As anybody who's ever holidayed in the United Kingdom can tell you, our weather is not forgiving. It has the scope to be both incredibly pleasant and disgustingly damp, and as the seasons change from summer to autumn, well, the weather follows suit. The situation was no different in 1987, and on the 19th of October, Wales was waking up to an exceedingly wet one. Tributaries of the Towie had sprung forth with water, and areas of flooding were to be found up and down the valley. Monday mornings are, well, often hard work, but on this occasion it wasn't only a lack of willing that could have prevented people from starting the week correctly, it looked as if it might be touch and go as to whether or not physically making journeys was going to be a possibility. This wasn't just a normal rainy day, it was the type that really starts to limit everyday business. At 5.27 on this very dreary damp day, a train left Swansea, bound first for Lanethi and then on via the heart of Wales into England. 
The train was timetabled to depart from Nethy at 5.46 and to arrive at Shrewsbury at 9.17, and from there connections could be made to onward destinations. A two-carriage diesel multiple unit was assigned to the train, a British Rail Class 108 to be precise, capable of carrying around 100 passengers at around 70 miles an hour, although I think with the conditions on this particular day, it was never likely to be at the top end of any of those figures. The train eventually actually departed at 5.40, and arrived at Lanethi 12 minutes late. Mr Churchill was at the leading end of the train, sat at the controls, and he was accompanied by Mr Anderson, a 27-year-old veteran of the guard's role at the rear of the train, speaking to the few passengers on board, only two in fact from Swansea at this point. Once they'd left Lanethi, they continued on, not really on schedule, but doing the best they could under the circumstances. They eventually arrived at Pantafanen, and from there they were further delayed by 24 minutes. This delay, however, was to await the arrival of somebody. Now, I know we don't tend to hold up trains nowadays just for a bloke, and even if a kind guard might hold on for a tick or two, 24 minutes might be a little bit extreme. There was a mitigating factor here, though. They were waiting for a Mr Sharp. Mr Sharp was one of the on-call managers in the area, and it had been arranged that he would be expected to travel on this train on this morning to help make sure the line was safe for use. At the point Sharp was with the train, they continued onwards down the line. Sharp's presence had been arranged because on the night before, on the Sunday, a uh, a Sunday on-call manager, Mr Scott, was contacted. He was responsible for the Swansea area, which included the Central Wales line, as the heart of Wales line was known at this point. At 10pm, his restful evening was disturbed by the ringing of his telephone. It was the signaller at Pantafanon, reporting that a driver of a locomotive had seen a section of the line flooded as he passed. Three specific areas were mentioned, and there was reference to ballast being washed away. The signalman said that he had already called out to a member of the permanent way staff to examine the line. Scott started making plans around the morning service. He knew that the weather was poor and there might be flooded or unsafe sections of line, so he had a few options. The first train through the area was to be the 527 from Swansea, and perhaps it would need to be held back until the line could be inspected. Mr Scott decided to take his car and drive towards Landelo himself to investigate the situation. On the way he encountered some light flooding and eventually arrived at Landelo. In the meantime, the permanent wayman was here turned around by some flooding, unable to make it to sight. Scott then tried to get further along the line by road, but he too was stopped by flooding, eventually by driving a different route, walking a little and climbing a bridge abutment, he managed to get onto the line. The sound of water was all around. He was aware of further potential flooding, but the walk was far and it was dark. He made a sensible decision that it might not be safe to walk alone in these conditions. Scott returned home, fully intending to inspect the line the following morning. With the roads flooded and permanent waste staff struggling to attend, he had only really one option. The method he was going to use would mean that the Swansea train would run and that he would be sat up front with the driver, examining the line as they went. This is a process that we call, unsurprisingly, examining the line. It does seem a little counterintuitive 
testing a safe condition by doing the exact thing that would be dangerous if the correct conditions weren't met. I mean, you don't test that your gun's unloaded by pulling the trigger. Um, but examining the line is certainly more risky than a track walk. But risky doesn't mean dangerous. It just means you need to control the activity more carefully. Travel at a safe speed. Travel at a speed that you can stop in the distance that you can see. Maybe get a pair, spare pair of eyes in the cab. And that was the plan. Scott had. He would sit there in the cab and be the extra pair of eyes. And as is often the case, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Scott arrived home at about 1am made a phone call to arrange all of the above, and then was called back half an hour later. Another crisis at another station. Back out in his car he went, this time headed for Carmarthen. At this point it became clear that Scott would not be able to visit the train and ride north with it, so other plans were made. Sharp was called, the other on-call man for the area, and asked to travel with the train. Ray Davis, additionally, a permanent waste supervisor, spoke to Scott and said that he would travel with it also, or at least attempt to, weather allowing. So, it was for this reason that the train was held at Pantafanon. To allow Sharp to climb on board, he joined the driver in the cab, and the train continued on. At Manford, a couple boarded, Mr and Mrs Evans, although the train waited here a few minutes more to allow Mr Evans to return from a phone call, departing at 6.48. Hanlabi saw Mrs Angus join the train, and the train finally then arrived at Landelo. Here, a Mr Bailey boarded, and then the train left the last station that it would get to call at that morning. It didn't get far north of the station before the train came across a permanent way supervisor, Mr Davies, in waterproof clothing, stood bound by the trackside. He signalled the train through a small area of flooding, and then climbed aboard. It was at this point that the final leg of his journey began. At Glenrid, there was a level crossing, just before the bridge. The driver, Churchill, reduced his speed to 10 mile an hour to cross it, and then applied a small amount of power to climb the shallow gradient towards the bridge. Davies was stood in the cab, watching the line ahead, looking for flooding, washed out ballast, or other hazards. The train's headlights were illuminating 20 to 25 yards of track ahead of them in the early morning dark. Davies' vision was concentrated in this area, and as the train approached the bridge at around about 15 miles an hour, he could see the end of the bridge girders. The bridge here carried the single track line over the river Towie, normally. As the train started to cross the bridge, it was clear all was not well. Davies noted that the bridge was distorted. Sharp became aware that the bridge had collapsed, and Churchill applied the emergency brakes. He called out, Hang on! The train slid down the rails and into the swirling waters of the River Towie.
What had been an uncomfortable, wet and slow journey had suddenly and surprisingly turned into something much, much worse. The lead carriage of the train had fallen forward almost entirely into the river. The trailing one, much less dramatically involved, was mostly on the deformed remains of the bridge. But while the situation outside looked dramatic enough, inside it was even more intense. Once the terrifying lurch into the river had taken place, the lead carriage started almost instantaneously to fill with water. Mrs Angus, one of the passengers on board, was thrown from her seat, hit her head and fell below the water. She swam up from below it and started to look around, trying to find a way out. While from the outside it was clear that the rear carriage remained on the tracks at least partially, its front end was in the water, and from where Angus was... It looked as though the situation was no better in there. The light at the end of the tunnel came in the form of Anderson, the guard of the train. He was initially knocked about a bit in the crash. At the time, he was standing up in the brake van, the compartment, well, the brake van compartment within his carriage. But moments later, he was thrown off his feet, across the van and into the wall, striking his head and losing his glasses. As he was getting up and recovering them, Water poured into the brake van through a broken window and it was quickly up his walls. Because of the use of this space as a cash handling area, it even had a security cage door. And for a horrifying few seconds, he thought he was trapped. But thankfully, the door opened and he escaped. From outside, however, he could look up the carriage and realise that the rear of the carriage was dry. At almost the same time, at the very front of the train, Sharp came to the same conclusion. He had looked out from the side window of the cab, saw that there was no chance of escape at the front end as the train floated there, but the rear of the train was clear. Sharp waded back along the carriage to check if it was possible to escape through the gangway to the rear portion. With the way the carriages had come to rest, it was a little challenging to get through it, but manageable. Once he'd made his way to the rear, he walked a little further back and ascertained that he found it was possible to step out of the rear passenger door onto the rear from the right-hand side of the coach and out onto the bridge girder. An escape, a route for people to get out. All of this had taken a few minutes, but the passengers were checked on as he passed through the train and nobody was seriously injured by some miracle, and everyone remained calm. Stoic. Sharp started to tell people. This way out. Mrs. Angus heard the call to come back, and after a period of trepidation, she did so. There were loose seats and other debris floating in the water. She half walked and half swam towards the rear of the carriage. She struggled to get through the gangway connection, but managed it before making her way to the rear of the train. She was soon followed through by Mr. Bailey, another passenger from the lead carriage. Sharp, now aware that passengers were outside the train on the damaged bridge, and aware of the fact that rail staff were still on board the train, made the choice to go and look after those who had already evacuated. Of the staff left on the train, Davies and Churchill had also exited the cab and were tending to passengers in the flooded front coach. At this point, evacuation was going well, calmly. People were not panicking, and people were gradually making their way out. And at this point, only the four people left in the front carriage were Mr. and Mrs. Evans, the two train crew, and additionally, one small passenger, a 14-year-old boy called Simon Penny. The time now had come for Mrs. Evans to traverse the difficult gangway into the rear carriage, but she struggled to make it. So Davies climbed up, 
through the gangway himself to help her from the other side. And it was now, with those four people left still in the lead portion of the train, the half-flooded, half-full-of-water carriage that the unthinkable happened. The gangway connecting the two vehicles parted. There was a crack, a noise, a loud bang, and then the front carriage turned to the right and sank below the surface so that only a small portion of its roof remained visible. For the four people left in that portion, the evacuation effort had come to a swift, terrible end. Not one of the four managed to exit the coach beyond this point. The survivors had to watch with futility and stand by without any opportunity to intervene. Every disaster has its roles of victims. At Glenrid Bridge, there was Sarah Patricia Evans, William Benjamin Evans, Simon Michael Penny, and John Michael Churchill. But personally, I really think we should spare a thought for those who watched that carriage slip beneath the waves, knowing that people were on board, knowing who was on board, and knowing that they would never emerge. That is the kind of memory I can imagine never goes away. at Glenrid Bridge truly was shocking and it raised a whole load of other questions that needed answering and while we'll get into how they were tackled we first probably need to talk briefly about the recovery stage here the location of the train within the water created issues from the off not only was the leading carriage submerged it was fast flowing flood water as well dirty from the mud it took off the broken banks and creating eddies and currents around the bridge supports and the wreckage of the train itself even in the immediate recovery phase, where light had risen a bit and the emergency services arrived in earnest, there were challenges. Gilbert John of BBC's Radio Wales arrived on the scene mid-morning. In an anniversary article on the BBC's website 30 years later, he described what he found when he got there. There were rescuers already at the scene. Firemen, divers, police officers and others, including rail engineers. All were simply standing, looking at the tail end of the two-carriage train. One carriage was still mainly on land, the other was twisted at 90 degrees in the river. Nobody could reach it. The roof was barely above water, and the roaring waters of the Towie were battering it, and were clearly too ferocious to attempt any rescue. Six people had escaped the initial plunge into the water, but we knew that there were at least four people still in that carriage. The train driver, an elderly couple, and a schoolboy we learned later. But... It was certain by that time that they were already dead. There was a grim frustration for all of us. The carriage was so close. These were trained rescuers desperate to save anyone who might still be alive, but would clearly, it would have been suicide even to attempt it. All that was visible of the entire carriage was a roof panel, probably about the size of a normal car's roof. The opening at the end of the carriage where the gangway to the rear had been was pointing upstream. It would have served like a scoop and the carriage would have filled rapidly. It made no sense for rescuers to lose their lives. And this was a very real possibility, trying to access this carriage. 
Now, when we move out of the initial stage, a team was assembled to start the unenviable task of figuring out how to recover the train and the wreckage of the bridge. Because it was clear that the bridge had played a significant role in the accident, it was really important to recover everything in a way which allowed investigators to understand what took place and not just the simplest way of getting rid of it, which, to be quite quite frankly, would probably have just been to blow it up and start from scratch. A civil engineering contractor was contracted to carry out the work and the 268-ton crane was erected on the riverbank. And by the time lifting work began, the river had long since returned to its normal levels and around half the carriage was now visible. On the 16th of November, nearly a month after the accident, that lead carriage was finally removed from the river. Over the next month, what remained of the bridge was lifted in parts and it was examined as best it could be, while all the time taking into consideration the safety of those doing the work. A long-winded process, but one carried out as comprehensively and safely as possible. Our question this episode is fairly simple to pick out. The train derailed into the river because the bridge had collapsed. So really, what we need to understand is, firstly, why the bridge did so. And secondly, once that collapse had taken place, was the disaster unavoidable. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Glenrid Bridge was a fairly standard bridge, consisting of a single track with five separate spans of welded plate main girders and welded prefabricated steel deck which was all waterproofed and tiled. The five spans were carried over the river by four masonry piers, and on one side of the bridge, a footpath was cantilevered off, so foot traffic could cross the river here as well. All of the piers and spans were numbered, starting at the Swansea end. Piers 1 and 2 were located in the main river, while 3 and 4 were located outside of the everyday river on the floodplain directly adjacent. All things considered a sturdy-sounding bridge, but there was clearly a problem with it. The bridge deck itself was only 29 years old, which sounds a lot, but let's bear in mind that the fourth rail bridge in Edinburgh is 132 years old. And the new deck was mounted on top of the original pierce, plus a small concrete pad that was added to elevate the bridge slightly, because the old bridge flooded occasionally and water reached the deck. One of the key parts of understanding how a structure responds is to understand the forces that it was subjected to. That meant that investigators needed to find out what the river was doing on the night of the 18th. Mr M.G. Todd, the head water bailiff for the Towie, told of the behaviour of the river. He said that it was not unusual for the river to flood several times during each winter, 
He'd been on duty during the 18th of October as the flood was developing and had observed the river from the road bridge at Llandelo. In his words, he had never seen the river come up as fast as that. A hydrologist was also consulted to talk on the flooding across Wales at the time. Miss Ross told that the weekend before the collapse there had been extensive flooding all over South Wales and this had been due to 50 and 200, well between 50 and 200 mil of rainfall in a 27 hour period. Frost was able to explain that using the data from a monitoring station five kilometres downstream, they could understand how the river might have been actually behaving at the point where the bridge was located. The monitoring station recorded a peak level between 10pm on Sunday and 1am on Monday, with the river at 3.81 metres, the highest recorded at that since starting, recording 20 years earlier. Now the river where the monitoring station was was spread out over 500 metres of floodplain, and with a floor speed of 1.7 metres per second. Frost was asked how this likely related to the floor upstream at the Glanrid Bridge. The floor, she said, was likely the same, but floor is a product of area and velocity. So, while the floor was the same, the tight constraints of the river there meant that the velocity was probably a bit greater than 1.7 metres per second, certainly enough to put strain on a bridge in the river there, in an area where regular seasonal floods were known to be an issue, the bridge surely should have been built to withstand that sort of treatment. When investigators looked at the wreckage, the steel superstructure of the bridge was found to be displaced from its alignment at piers 2 and 3. So the bridge was horizontally moved 3.7 metres downstream at pier 2 and 4.4 metres at pier number 3. The wreckage curved almost towards the downstream direction. And it was apparent from this that the bridge collapsed due to one of two things. Either sideways displacement on the superstructure, the deck, pushed the bridge off its supports and collapsed it onto the river, or there was a failure of one or both of piers number two and number three. To tackle the question of whether the bridge deck, the superstructure, was displaced, consideration was given to whether the flood water reached a height above the level of the underside of the bridge. This would have placed a horizontal force on the superstructure and could have pushed it over. There were no accurate measurements of the flood level available, but various site observations were taken and obtained over the course of the investigation, and that they all indicated that the water in the river was probably about half a metre below the level of the superstructure of the bridge. So on that basis, it was concluded that the flood water flow did not contribute directly to the sideways displacement of the bridge, Strike one. So how about debris in the water? There was evidence of many, many trees being swept down the river. Investigators considered the possibility that floating trees may have become jammed under the bridge's girders, causing an uplift on the structure, reducing its effective weight, and then transmitting to the superstructure a horizontal force, pushing it, displacing it downstream in the direction that it did collapse. However, if trees had jammed under the superstructure and caused its collapse, it would seem likely that evidence of those trees would have remained. As the bridge was recovered, the steel spans were cut and lifted, with work being carried out by divers using thermic lances to cut the underwater connections clear. The spans were lifted and removed from the water and examined, and no such evidence was found, and calculations that were carried out found that well, the likely uplift and horizontal forces applied to the superstructure from trees would be insufficient to have displaced it and caused this disaster. B. 
Because of that, it was decided that it was unlikely that trees had jammed under the superstructure, and that even if they had, it wouldn't have caused a collapse. Strike two on the reasons why this took place. When the spans were lifted, significant attention was also paid to the piers. These were the areas of the bridge which would have been directly interfacing with the water, so the understanding, well, it was important to understand where they were and what condition that they were in. The two piers of most interest were the two most obviously absent from the view at the surface. Piers 2 and 3 towards the centre of the bridge. Let's look a little bit closer at those piers. The bridge crossed the river at a 45 degree angle. To allow for the river to flow around these piers, the piers were also inclined at 43 and 5 degrees as well. This provided the minimal cross-section in the direction of water flow and should have allowed heavy flows of water to just run around the piers and not just smash into them. The ends of the piers tapered off into cut waters, wedges that are designed to reduce water pressure and erosion by directing the water flow around the pier. The one thing that records couldn't shed any immediate information on was the makeup of the bridge's foundations. What exactly did they sit upon on the riverbed? How deep were those foundations? And more detail on that would become apparent when the recovery work was undertaken. In order to better understand the the wreckage on the floor, piles were driven into the riverbed around the piers to allow the divers to create a grid and map out the debris. And debris was the word. They found that the masonry piers were substantially damaged, and in a number of pieces as well, not ideal for holding up the railway line in flood conditions, clearly. Of particular significance was the position Pier 2 had collapsed into. The damaged chunks had fallen to the east of the footings. Studying the flow directions of the water, and understanding what direction the water would have applied force to Pier 2 in, That didn't make sense. If anything, the river would have pushed the pier over into the other direction, towards the west and Clandelo. This didn't add up, with water having been the contributing factor. So with this knowledge in their pocket, they finally were in a position to highlight a specific component which had failed. Since the water, since the forces derived from the river acting on the pier would have been insufficient to cause the overturning of Pier 2, it seemed that the cause was movement of the superstructure on top of it. The bridge deck. This would have pulled the pier over to the east, along with it. The position in which the two bearing blocks, the part of the connection between pier 2 and the spans, from the top of the pier, were found on the riverbed afterwards. That was appropriate to a movement of the bridge spans east and downstream. Pier 2 was pulled over. That's what the wreckage told us. And the only thing on the rest of that bridge which could have initiated Pier 2 being pulled over by the bridge deck was the collapse of Pier 3. With that in mind, the investigation focus shifted thoroughly onto the wreckage of the third pier. It wasn't long before studies of the wreckage and the riverbed below it identified the culprit, a phenomenon known as scouring. Bridge scour is the removal of sediment such as sand or gravel from around bridge abutments or piers. Hydrodynamic scour caused by fast-flowing water, well, that can carve out scour holes, literally holes in the riverbed. They compromise the integrity of the structure that they're adjacent to. What essentially happens is that any obstruction within flowing water, that produces changes in velocity within the water column. 
the floor changes that can occur cause movement in the bed materials near the obstruction, and the magnitude of these changes varies with stream velocity, feature shape, and riverbed makeup. But the well, the end result is a hole is created behind the obstruction downstream of it. If left unchecked, this hole can get larger and larger and eventually undercut the foundations of an abutment, leaving it unsupported or insufficiently sore. It's apparent that scouring beneath Pier 3 had caused the riverbed material to be removed from its foundations. This allowed the downstream end of the pier to settle, and that broke the back of the pier. Then the downstream end of the pier migrated into an adjacent zone of deeper scour directly behind it, and the upstream end of the pier also settled in the downstream direction. This failure will have misaligned the superstructure downstream, and the pier failed fully in that direction, pulling with it the rest of the bridge. The foundations of the bridge had been undercut. The piers didn't have the support they needed, and in turn, the tracks, well, they didn't really have a pier. Investigators finally had an answer for what had caused a perfectly sturdy-looking bridge to collapse into a fast-flowing river. We've spoken previously about assets on the railway, such as points or tracks, and how they have an inspection schedule which is designed to make sure that they don't degrade to a dangerous degree. And you probably won't be that surprised to find out that bridges are subject to these sorts of regimes as well, and Glanrid Bridge was no exception. The inspection schedule that the bridge was subject to was outlined in a document at the time known as the Civil Engineering Department Handbook 6. Catchy. Bridges were inspected in detail by a trained examiner once every six years. This involved as full an examination as was possible, bearing in mind the physical conditions of the bridge. Now, in case of the Glanbridge Bridge, a rail-mounted inspection unit was used, which enabled the examiner to get underneath the bridge's steelwork. The examiner would also carry out a visual inspection of the underwater parts of the structure, and if there was any cause for concern, well, the diver would be employed to make a more detailed ex- examination. And... In each of the intervening years, a less detailed inspection would also be made. While the regime was in place, and there was an expectation that it would be followed, and indeed the evidence is there that it was, there are a few problems with it. Bridge piers and foundations in rivers are, unsurprisingly, underwater. This makes their visual inspection very challenging, requiring the use of diving equipment to have a proper look, and actually it was apparent to the investigators that technical knowledge might have been lacking. In fact, A. Cooksey, Deputy Chief Inspecting Officer of Railways, wrote in his report into the accident, I regret to report, in my opinion, many of British Railways engineers involved in the maintenance of structures in or over watercourses did not have sufficient understanding of the complex behaviour of rivers, such as the Towie, when in flood. Many of these involved were, of course, exceptionally capable and experienced engineers, but were not specialists in the narrow specialism involved. 
He goes on to say that this was demonstrated by a few issues, one of which being a decision to repair one of the bridge piers, Pier 2, in a certain way five years earlier. While the repair to the upstream end of the pier successfully strengthened the masonry and repaired the damage to it, the whole way they did it actually increased the risk to the pier from scouring. Now, they weren't necessarily to know that, but they weren't experts in the field of hydrodynamics or hydro-pneumatics or whatever that specialism is that someone's probably going to correct me on. It wasn't malicious, but it was a side effect of not having the expertise that a dedicated specialist would have had. One other point that was quite heavily laboured on in the report as well was that of the foundations of the bridge piers. Cooksey pointed out that there is always going to be a problem with knowing with any certainty the construction details of structures of the age of the majority of railway structures. Foundations particularly, well, they present details because they present issues because they are hidden from sight. Even when contract drawings exist, there is no guarantee that the structure was built according to the drawings. Frequently unrecorded changes were made to the design on site during the building of structures. Once the structure has stood for many years, the adequacy of the foundations tends to be taken for granted. And when subsequently changes are made to the structures, the foundations, well, they tend to be taken for granted as well as long as the load upon them is not significantly increased. It appears, however, that no effort was made, or no attempt was made at the time to establish the depth or form of construction, or the piers of the bridge, or to make a proper engineering assessment of the adequacy of the foundations. I consider this situation to be unsatisfactory. The difficulties of inspecting and establishing the construction of underwater foundations are considerable, and should not be underestimated. The investigation had made its conclusion, and that was that the bridge collapsed at some time between 2115 on Sunday the 18th of October and 0700 on Monday the 19th of October, during an abnormally severe flood of the River Towie. The collapse was caused by the failure of one of the bridge piers, which was undermined by the scouring action of the river. The report in its conclusion, however, did bring attention to two allegations which were raised during the investigation and which reserved widespread publicity. The first was that the Welsh Water Authority deliberately discharged a large volume of water from Brown Reservoir and so made the flooding worse. The allegation was made that for fisheries purposes the release had been made and that this irresponsible act had caused the disaster by increasing water flow downstream. However, the authority released a statement saying this hadn't taken place and the water flow data delivered by Frost backed this up, essentially killing the rumour. The second was that a passenger train was deliberately used to test a suspect bridge. 
The railway had known the bridge was potentially damaged by floodwater and that a trainload of passengers had been placed at risk to ensure that it was okay for traffic. And the report is fairly unequivocal in its response to this one. None of the railway staff involved in the decision to use the passenger train to examine the line either knew of or anticipated that there would be any serious damage to the bridge which would have put the safety of the train at risk. The crew knew about several areas of potential flooding they might find on their route, but none of any issues that might be found on the bridge. And to be fair, and I'm not being funny here, if I thought a bridge might collapse under my train, there is not a chance I'd be driving one out on it, and I'm fairly sure that Churchill, Sharp and Davies all felt the same that morning. Examining the line is not designed as a principle to put people at risk, so it wouldn't have been used that way on this occasion. The investigation was satisfied that prior to the collapse there were no visual indications to those who were responsible for examining the bridge, that its stability was in any way in danger. But the final conclusion of the report drew back an issue of experience and its lacking in crucial areas. Nevertheless, I consider that there existed, and had existed for many years, a lack of understanding within many levels of the railway engineers of the complex hydraulic behaviour of watercourses. In particular, the rapid changes that can occur in riverbed levels was not anticipated. I consider the past arrangements whereby bridge superstructures were replaced without any check being made on the existing foundation construction to be unwise. Lessons should be learned from every accident. They need to be. Every accident should be the last time that that specific set of circumstances came together and took lives in that way. Glanderid Bridge did wonders for the safety culture in the region, as well as highlighting areas where gaps in knowledge had led to gaps in safety. Indeed, I read an article while I was doing this, um, which, particularly at the time it was written, harked on that following Glanderid, there hadn't been a single passenger fatality in Wales for 20 years. And... Um, I think I believe, if I remember correctly, the article was entitled um, "In Wales, the most dangerous part of the railway is getting to the station," and it it, it probably was. Um, and there was a really good safety culture in Wales from that point onwards. But I'm digressing. Did the accident at Glanrid and the way that it took place mean that we would never see a similar accident on the network again? Allow me to read you the first paragraph of REIB Report 22 from 2016. At 8.40 hours on Thursday the 31st of December 2015, subsidence of Lamington Viaduct resulted in serious defamation of the track as the 0557 crew to Glasgow passenger service passed over at a speed of around 110 miles an hour. The viaduct spans the River Clyde between Lockerbie and Carstairs, Subsequent investigation showed that the viaduct's central river pier had been partially undermined by scour following high river flow the previous day. The line was closed for over seven weeks until Monday the 22nd of February 2016, while emergency stabilisation works were completed. Staff responding to an early report of a rough ride on the bridge at Lamington had arrived on the bridge to examine what was going on there. 
Within about five minutes, a northbound train approached on the up on the down line, travelling at around 110 mile an hour. The track maintenance staff watched it cross the viaduct and noticed unusual movement between the carriages. They then observed that the downline had distorted. Sweeping dips were visible across the viaduct. The track maintenance staff immediately started to look for the cause of the movement, and during this time, one train crossed the viaduct at low speed on the upline. Between Beneath the deck, they found a stone block missing from the central river pier and large fractures above the gap. All in all, the bridge was closed for seven weeks. The risk, though, the potential for an absolutely horrific disaster, it's chilling. But should it have taken place? Should it have got to that point? British Rail responded really well to Glanrid and the, the lessons that were learnt. Um, they went round and the risk to all of their bridges was measured using a method developed by them and Hydraulics Research of Wallingford. A process known as the very catchy EX250211 was used to undertake an initial assessment and establish a priority rating based on the scour risk for each structure. And it allowed structures at the highest risk to be identified so they could further detailed assessments and remedial actions could take place. Um, the assessment process was really comprehensive. It took the factors into consideration such as the gradient of the river, its width, its depth, the ratio of the channel width to bridge width, riverbed material, angle of attack, foundation, lots, everything was taken into account, developed by people with a real understanding of hydrodynamics. And such an in-depth assessment process must have removed the risk to bridges and stopped this accident from being a potential accident, surely. Well, unfortunately not. The risk assessment process only provides safety when the outputs are acted upon, and this is where Lamington came bad. The assessments detected the risk, and some of the required actions were undertaken, but not all of them were done in a timely fashion, and there were other steps that were missed, which essentially meant that there were warning signs that dangerous scour damage might have occurred on the bridge, and even after a dip had been noticed by one driver, another was allowed to pass over the bridge at line speed, 110 miles an hour. Um, I would... I could probably do a whole other episode on Lamingtons and the Amiss, and I might do it at some point, so I won't go into too much detail now, but I would recommend going and having a read of it in the context of this episode to understand just how terrifying that dangerous occurrence was. I find Glanrid and Lamington both fascinating to read upon in isolation, but far more so in conjunction. If Glanrid was an example of an innocent, in inverted commas, lack of knowledge and experience, which led to tragic deaths... I think it would be fair to say that the dangerous occurrence at Lamington shows a lack of respect for the knowledge that was paid for so cruelly. Corporate memory is important. We need to understand and remember the reasons for our rules and the price that was being paid for our safety. We cannot, should not, must not ever forget those who lost their lives so that others following didn't need to. The best way of respecting their memories is to ensure that the lessons learned stay learned
Thank you once more for joining us for episode two of season two. Um, please like, share, review, come interact on social media. Find uh, me at Signal Danger or at Daniel Fox Rail. And not forgetting the uh, the chance to support the podcast. I apologise if the sound quality was a little bit off. It's A, a new microphone, B, a stuffy nose, and C, I'm not even in the same building that I normally record in. So hopefully it turned out all right. In any case, thank you so much. And until the next episode, travel safe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.